Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Horus Heretics. Um, this week we will be looking at uh, false gods, but first of all I'll introduce you to the other host, Neil. Hello. You know him already, but I just introduced him anyway because it's the first time I've done the introduction. Um, and my name is William. So it's a ple- uh, pleasure to be here, William. <laughs> right. Um, so I guess we should uh, dive right into it, unless you want to call back I, anything. I, I, uh, I've actually done a little bit of research before we dive into the book. Well, really? I just I thought I would, yeah, I thought I would impress everyone with some knowledge. Uh, it came after um, you sort of freaked me out a little bit with the number of books in this series, and uh, we talked a little bit about how many books okay. they produce per year. So this book is by Graham McNeil, yep. and uh, on his Wikipedia page, it's got his sort of um, his whole writing history, or at least. A good bunch of it. Okay. I counted up his bibliography, and just for Black Library, assuming that he wrote other things as well, but just for Black Library, he wrote twenty-three novels in ten years. That's Jesus. that's incredible. And like he did other things, like different codexes and stuff that I don't really know what they are <coughs> for the game and stuff. So this that's an incredible output. Well, let's just kind of see where we are at this. Chapter one, give give oh. some sort of structure to this conversation. Right? Okay, begin begin chapter one. Chapter one. Um, Let me just break in there, William. Okay. I've got a quote. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a quote before chapter one even starts. Okay. Um, for anyone who hasn't read these things, uh, every book begins with some uh, pompous blather. Um, in like three different quotes, I think. What you're about in. to say, I think I missed these the first. <laughs> one is like one is by uh, Carcassy, so they're they're fictional quotes uh, within the fiction of the books, and he he says some sort of blah blah nonsense, and the the name of the poem that he wrote is called Meditations on the Elegiac Hero, which is. <laughs> Which is the most pompous. Like, I would so want to read that poem. It would be lovely if that was like printed in an annex at the back. <laughs> I'm surprised these books don't have like loads of annexes. To just, be honest, just write it, man. Um, write I, I would never. I couldn't. I wouldn't have it in me <laughs> to write meditations on the elegiac era. When I saw it, I, I sort of took a little second to myself and just thought, what is an elegiac hero? What? Anyway. Um, thought I would break in. Let's go. Chapter one. Let's do this. Okay, well, that's not the quote that I thought you were going to... Oh, you've got another one. Sit. Okay. Well, no. Right, so Petronella Vivar is a character we're going to get to. She's a an, an, an remembrancer who appears in this book. Um, the quote that from her before chapter one even begins is, it would take a thousand cliches to describe the war master, each one truer <laughs> than Noah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it means nothing. Most of these things mean absolutely nothing, but they, they there is like a cadence to them that is pleasing. <laughs> that is but funny because it kind of describes the writing style of the books. It's like it's like we're just going to say a million times how amazing this guy is, and um, they'll all be true, but it also won't really mean anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because like she um, she pretty much starts like her introduction to the story pretty much starts the first chapter which we're getting into yeah and there was a quote um from her this is just quoting bits from the book now but this is practically the start of chapter one in her introduction she's an aristocrat and 
she's sort of bred for the job of being a remembrancer. Um, but her quote is, it is with great heart and a solemn sense of honour that I, Petronella Vivar, Palatina Majoria of House Carpines, do pen these words. That is a mouthful. For many a long year I have journeyed from Terra, enduring many travails and inconveniences. Cut. Petronella frowned and quickly erased the words she had written, angry at having copied the unnatural effectiveness that so infuriated her in the Remembrancer's script that had been sent back from the leading edge of the Great Crusade. I read that and I was like, she's she's busting on these books just like we do. She's, <laughs> she's, she's like, yeah. And I, I, when I read that, I just thought, ah, she's a good character. Her and I will get on quite well. Yeah, I think she's actually okay. I think she's an okay character and... Um but she she's um she's a haughty aristocrat and so when she's introduced i was like oh she's just going to be insufferable but she's not really she's, and she's got stuff to do yeah i thought like i thought she was just going to be portrayed based on that first bit that you're talking about in the start of chapter 1 she was just going to be portrayed in really sort of one dimensional unsympathetic sniffy, yeah sniffy aristocrat but looking she kind down of her becomes nose. more a, a bit likable, I would say later on, and, and a bit more uh, I think drawn out. I, I, yeah, she she never really seems too stuck up. Um, at least I I don't remember thinking that of her, but uh, yeah, pretty good character. And then you get onto another new character who um, is Jonah Arakan. Oh yeah. Um, who is uh, he's basically piloting one of the Titans. You know, I do like, I do like the Titans. Um, oh, they're they're iconic. They are part of this, um, part of the key aspects of this uh, this mythos. Yeah, so they're basically like giant sort of um, anthropomorphic, like war machines, essentially. Like they big, walk on two big, legs. Big robots. There's like, as far as I can tell, there's a kind of cyberpunk element to this thing where they're like three people together pilot these things I think and they kind of like stick wires into their heads and sort of you know their brain kind of interfaces with it somehow and kind of like a technical manual almost of like getting into a, a, a titan and how it's operated and lots of biomechanical doodads and stuff being plugged into ports on people and stuff it's um it's. I find it a bit dry, to be honest. Yeah, because I think they like, they like mentioned the Titans in the first book, but they didn't really get much like proper screen time, did they? It was just sort of um, they had Titans, but this this kind of actually is taking you inside one of them and and introducing its uh, crew as a, as characters. Um, yeah. But basically, then the the uh, Horus and the rest of them start landing on uh, Davin um, where they've been called back they've been called to Davin which is a place they went to like decades ago isn't it like 60 years ago or something yeah they they were responsible for bringing Davin to compliance and they'd sort of left it in the hands of uh, a governor and had gone on to you know uh, explore the galaxy further and they'd just forgotten about it, basically. They, they thought, well, once it's compliant. And um, and this, they, they'd said that Davin was actually... They they were happy to be brought into the Imperium, 
Imperium of Man, unlike the races that were uh, discovered in the first book. These blokes were just like, yeah, yeah, the the Imperium of Man seems pretty, pretty good. We'll happily join. So they'd gone off and left it, and it was Erebus in the just at the end of the first book who was like, we need to go to Davin. Something's happening there. Yeah, and like looking back on it, it's weirdly like vague. The, in the first book, you mean, or or just even now at this point in this book where they're going to Davin, they know that something's up, but. Yeah, but but what's weird about it is that it's vague to them. Like they they, they don't even know why they're. That's going. what I mean. Yeah, like like they they know that something's up, but they're just sort of like yeah, let's. And it's and it's it's like they they get to Davin, and no, Horus or nobody is like okay, Erebus, what's going on? They, n- nobody does that because he's got a big reveal planned, in a in a tent. <laughs> Like they're going in a yurt. Sorry, that was it. They're, they, he's like, no, mate, I've got this big thing planned. I can't tell you what it is. Well, I mean, we've brought the entire fleet, and like, no, no, it's going to be great. It's it's going to be really good. Um, and but none of them even get that far. Like they're just like, well, I think Erebus will tell us in his own time. Uh, you know, it it did seem really weird. This is where we meet sort of Loken and Abaddon again uh, for the first time after the books and this is where I was like well these characters have completely changed because uh, Abaddon basically attacks Loken uh, do you remember like they're, they're both um, training in the cages mm. and uh, Loken's personal remembrancer is there Yeah, and uh, th- this is where it the, the book I think really begins by putting a misstep if, if you see what I mean like this is where I noticed the structure of the book really feeling um, because yeah he was a complete dick and Loken uh, I can't remember what stage it is but Loken is clearly wary of him and Mercedes is just like why why would you be so uh, wary of your brother and Loken is like Oh, well, because of what happened on Davin. So everything is being told in, you know, the past tense. Nothing is just happening. Everything is um, happening as if it was like the story is told in remembrances of the past. And that's what the remembrances seem to be. They're just a plot device to get people talking to each other and remembering what's happened. But it, it doesn't seem to do anything like um, the the I don't see why they keep doing this this trick of like uh, the the timeline jumps forward and you've got characters talking. Oh, do you remember that time back on the planet? And then the the book cuts back to the planet. Like I I don't know what that structure gains yeah, apart that, from like being confusing. That was just confusing. I don't think I even noticed that first time round. To be honest, which I was just like, I th- I kind of think like the book is a lot about having being remembered like there are characters who clearly their whole their whole thing why they're doing everything is to be remembered is so that they leave something behind them after they die so i was like is that is this why they're doing this and then i had that thought and i was like no obviously it's not it's definitely definitely not it's just uh a confusing literary technique that gives it nothing but makes it more confusing um anyway i sidetracked you there for a little bit no it's okay um another thing that 
I sort of highlighted this when we were talking about book one, but like now, um, Erebus is just like totally shifty, and Loken just really suspicious of him. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- this is, but that's the thing. Like, we're not sure. Like, I I've gone through the book, and I'm still not sure at which point in the timeline this is. All that we know at the start of the book is that something has happened on Davin, and this is after it. So, uh, yeah, I've got another uh, quote, uh, if you will. Okay. Um, through training, Abaddon cuts Loken, and uh, Abaddon says, You bleed, said Abaddon, and took Loken's arm in his powerful grip. The... S- <laughs> The sonorous tone of his of his voice only accentuating his massive bulk. Loken glanced at his bulging muscle. You're getting soft, Loken. <laughs> but uh, right. so, so we're now we're now, we're now in. Well, I'm certainly in a state of deep confusion about. Uh, <laughs> where we are in this story or anything but i think we can we can all we can find ourselves again in the yurt um yes that you mentioned earlier bizarrely the yurt smelled of apples um <laughs> that's an- yes that's totally true they went into a lot of bother saying that it smelled of apples <laughs> well that's the that's the exact line from the text so bizarrely the yurt smelled of apples <laughs> begins a paragraph um, how bizarre I, I wonder if they thought it was less bizarre when they find out uh, so they're here for the commander's war count ca- for Horus's war council to figure out or to be informed of why they're on Davin. Is that right? Uh, I think we're we're missing out a bit. Yeah, there's a bit with Horus and Malagorst that um, this is also a bit where Horus just goes fucking mad with rage over nothing, and he seems he seems totally chaosy. Malagorst uh, goes to Horus's sanctum with. Uh, some news that uh, Petronella Vivar has uh, requested uh, requested something and Mal is like this is ridiculous I'm not even going to tell Horus um, and Horus is in there in the dark sort of brooding to himself and this is a little bit like what we were talking about with uh, Abaddon being completely different from the last book Horus is uh, really really different uh, as well he goes into a, like a mad rage where he's shouting like the emperor made him with the ability to grasp the infinite this kind like really shit line that he he said 10,000 years from now i want my name to be known all across the heavens so it, it's a, it's a a strange uh fit that he goes into cuz uh he goes from like whispering introspection when uh, Mal discovers him, like Mal just kind of stumbles upon him almost, and he's like whispering, and then within a minute he's like chuckling to himself in good humor, and then he like explodes in a rage, which is pretty chaosy. The story doesn't seem quite to know like how it wants to settle on whether Horus was kind of like descending into corruption to what extent that was happening just sort of through his own sense of ambition or to what extent was it just like magic essentially (laughs) um well i i think it's um at the start when like when i was reading this 
bit, I I was like, okay, well, that's a bit, that's a bit forthright. But having read on, I don't know. I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear that, according to this author, anyway, that the uh, the source of horses' fall is pure ambition and uh, his desire to be remembered and uh, not not forgotten by the uh, empire that he helps to build but can't uh, lead into the the bright future see uh, I think the start of the second half of the book might change your view on that a wee bit um, yeah because there's some super magic stuff going on um, okay <laughs> but I'll leave it at that for now because that's for another day but um yeah, but no, I think you're right. There's definitely an attempt to uh, depict him as somehow being sort of ripe for being corrupted by chaos, essentially. Mm. But I think, like as as I said before, that these characters seem seemed super different. But it was at that point that I thought, well, I mean, it's it's totally unfair to require um, an author to treat the characters exactly the same as the previous author. Um, and it, once I got beyond that, um, I, I I was sort of quite pleased with how, well, I was quite excited about how future books might be because every author gets to play with these characters themselves and don't like one character in one book. Well, it might be, he might be a completely different character in the next one, depending on how the uh, author decides to use them. Uh, not Torgaden, though. He's he's beyond he's, he's beyond help. But yeah, like, I do think this like this sort of sense of a brooding um, Horus was more consistent maybe than he was in the first book. You know, um, I was never quite sure what the, what was trying to be done with him in the first book, um, and this seemed more just of a sort of straightforward. Um, you know, yeah, you could kind of see where where they were going with that in terms of. Um, setting him up for a, a fall to evil. Um. But let's let's get down to the the yurt again. Okay. The you know you you painted a vivid picture. It's a yurt. Bizarrely, it smells of apples. <laughs> yeah, that's the scene set, folks. That's that's the the world building that happens. And uh, there the, there's also a um, Davenite Lodge Master here, so. This planet they're on, there's some kind of lodge system there. Yeah, and and this is um, so I think this seems mainly through the point of view of Carcassy. And when you're talking about characters Ugh. being different in this book, right? Like in the first book, he was I mean he was still kind of an arsehole, but he was like he was meant to be sort of a like lovable rogue type character essentially, wasn't he? Like yeah, um, but here he's like he's just disgusting. Like, Sleazy, essentially, isn't he? Like, um, I have, I have a quote. This is, this book does not, does not write women well. No, the last one, the last one didn't, but this one is gross. But yeah, like there's in fantasy, sci-fi. It seems there's basically and broadly there's two ends to the spectrum of sexism. Um, one is the kind of War of the Rings thing where there just aren't really women in the book, you know what I mean? Or or not in any substantial sense anyway. And yeah. that was kind of like, the first book was a bit like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, books where there are women but they're 
I'm not saying I'm just saying I'm not saying all sci-fi is sexist. I'm just saying when it when it is sexist, which is probably often, um, <laughs> this uh, uh, then this is sometimes more towards the scale of like the women are just depicted um, as quite sexist tropes. Like the worst bit for me, I think, was um, there was a character yeah. called Wendoon. Yeah. Oh yeah, she she was um, yeah she was considered like she had red hair and she was a firecracker. Yeah, that, I think firecracker Ugh. may have been literally used, but um. Oh yeah, it was no, it was literally used. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember exactly how it plays out, but Carcassy is basically um trying to chat her up or no um. Yeah, that's towards the end of yeah. I read that bit today. He um. He's trying to chat. No, no, it's kind of all out on the table, basically. Yeah. She uh, wants to be mentioned to Horace and basically will fuck him for, you know, to, to move up in her career. And she's sort of depicted as this uh, lascivious, um, good for nothing, you know, slut, basically. Um, and. I was just like, whatever she's doing is totally cool. Like, she's doing abs- absolutely whatever she wants to do to get by. That's fine. But she's, like, treated like shit for doing it. Yeah, no, I, d- I did think that was definitely the worst bit, and that was the most sort of uh, just basic sexist trope. Um, the, the, yeah, the, 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 but there is that, and that's it's ex- explicit, and it's impossible to miss. But even even when the women are just going about their business they're just they're just not written they're just there's no character in them See, that's um, what i mean that's what that's like that's kind of back towards more like the talking type of you know uh sexism which is just not really having a um presence of women in the book in any meaningful sense and then, yeah but this also sometimes slips into the sort of i don't know robert e howard yeah. <laughs> style sexism of like actually you know being directly sexist. I don't know Robert E. Howard what does he Conan does he do? um, oh god right okay we're back in the yurt we're still in the yurt still in air yeah As everyone's waiting around and um, in comes Erebus uh, and when he's described like he comes in covered in like parchment is that right? I have that written down, but I have like question marks beside it. But I, he's shaven headed, but with writing all over his head. He must have looked like a real picture. Um, yeah. yeah, I yeah. Yeah, he, we, he is in the word bearer, so you know he's bearing words. Uh, oh, that's, <laughs> yes, yes, good point. That was so <laughs> obvious that I missed it. <laughs> that's right. One of his uh, bits of armor is a book, like. <laughs> Uh, one of his like shoulder pauldrons or something is in the shape of a book so yeah that's the level we're working on yeah so at this point uh Loken uh it flashes back to just before this in the timeline and Loken invites Carcassy to uh to the yurt uh to listen to Erebus and judge him because he uh Loken sort of uh, considers Carcassy to be a decent judge of people, and um, the, the, like I've written here that in in the book that the flashback takes half a page, 
So I, I don't know why that why they flash back to that. It's not important enough to flash back. If, if it's important, just put it before it in the book. Like yeah. it's not clever. No, I know. Um, it's it, it was just frustrating. No, you're right. But then There's no need for but, it. But then, like after that flashback, there's another confusing jump to just before the planet fall, and I, at this point, I was sort of jumping back in the book to be like, "Have I missed something? Like, is there has there been a printing error here?" And and chapter three has been put before chapter two or something. Um, but no, no, this is where Loken finds Cinderman to return the book that he gave him in the first half. Um. Uh, there was very funny stu- uh, bit where Cinderman is in the library, um, in the lurid section. So, like, when they say the lurid section, is it like, is it meaning like the the type of book that like he gave to Woken? It's like full of this kind of. Um, I, I think so, but more more so. Yeah. So he's reading all the stuff that's got stuff about um, chaos and. Yeah, old Earth stories about chaos and, and that later on in the book we're, we're introduced to magnus the red and uh he lives on a planet of libraries i love magnus the red just gonna say that w- now but we'll get to him but you're absolutely right to love him he's a total dude i i love him too um and yeah he lives in a pyramid that's a good thing <laughs> <laughs> it's a pyramid that's also a library yeah. um that's that's cool there's no getting around that. Magnus has just got the best planet. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and also, like, there's quite a lot of scholars just um, going about in these libraries. Uh, that's that's a good point. Like, what do they do? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Who are they? <laughs> like, and, and as someone who, you know, works in, in history at universities, I'm like, where is their funding coming from? You know? Like... <laughs> Um, do you think they have to get ethics approval (laughs) (laughs) they're all like they're proper academics and they're all like tisking um you know carol cinderman in the wood in the wood (laughs) where the where are we in this book where are we in this i just looked down at the page i've just sort of i've I've been reduced to sort of almost randomly flicking through to try and find where we are and i've reached I just alighted upon the words, a crack when tension filled the yurt. <laughs> that is funny. I, I wonder if if a crackling tension has ever filled the yurt before. It doesn't, it's language that doesn't fit with the type of life that happens in a yurt. But, but I, suppose it, I suppose it does, the, you know. the. Um, yeah, I mean, you can get quite a good experience of these books by just sort of almost randomly jumping to lines <laughs> well I, I've got a, a, a line written down here it's completely devoid of context um, it's just my own sort of editorialising back in the yurt Torgadon tries a joke it doesn't land <laughs> so, that's a line that we could cut and paste throughout this book because I remember when I was editing the um, the last podcast um, we did make a point about how terrible the jokes were but that there were so few of them it was bearable in this book there are a lot more and they're even worse like Tor- Torgadin is reduced to the the point he's like a you know a, a, a blokish frat boy you know who um, 
every now and again will just come up to the two main characters, put his arms around them, and like try to get them to chug a beer or something. <laughs> but they're in a he's, way, yeah, like you know, yeah, he is. Um, he's he's insufferable, and he's not funny. But like he's always cracking some shitty joke. <laughs> but in a way, they're all like that when they sometimes when they get together. Right? There's there's a scene I can't remember if it was this or the last book where they're just like horsing around. <laughs> 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 but that's 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 quite a funny bit in this book, like a relatively funny bit. They're all horsing around, um, and like Torgaden says something that isn't funny. But they're all like, "Oh, Torgaden, you ooh, look at you!" And then like somebody <laughs> like they start fake wrestling, and at that point, Horace brings over uh, Petronella to introduce him to this, you know, to the mourn of all these people of high standing. And he's like, look at these scamps, basically. Isn't and like, well, it said, it said something like, Abaddon released Torgadon from a headlock. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> uh, like, that's, that is, that is quite funny. Like, that's the, that's the, the laugh for the book. Oh, that, no, that's not true. Cause there, there is some, truly terrible dialogue that had me laughing out loud. I don't really laugh at books that often, like even funny books. Um, I don't laugh out loud at too much. But this one I, I did have, it did have me rolling around a few times. I mean, it's important to point out, you've already implied or sort of said that um, your note said Turgadon's joke doesn't land, but that's obviously from your perspective as a reader in terms of the characters um, the Mournival Turgadon's jokes almost invariably do land with them I think they always like yeah. they're always like oh Turgadon you always lighten the mood you know we always need need you to that's, lighten the mood that's what you do you're a you're a a, a modern day Bobby Davro <laughs> <laughs> um, right we're, we're getting I mean this whole podcast has been getting sidetracked throughout I mean that's just been one massive sidetrack and uh, sense of confusion for me at least but I think the point is here in terms of the story that they find <laughs> they find out that there's a man called Yugen Temba uh, well they know him, they don't find out that this man exists they know him from before because Horus kind of installed him there as the what, what was he like governor of this planet? Yeah, he was, he was like, I think, yeah, planetary governor, I think. Um, but th this was done in Erebus's big reveal for why he had brought them there. He was like, ah, but you think you've come and you'll you'll meet Yugen Temba, but you won't because he's turned to evil. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's it's really transparent, like not, not within the fiction. Well, within the fiction but also it's using these plot devices that were common in movies from like the 1950s and 60s you know like uh, Lo uh, he tells Horus this and Horus is mad and Erebus goes well I mean you can't go up to defeat him he's on the moon you can't go and Horus is like why can't I go I will go and Erebus is like no no I don't think you'd go and do it I don't think you'd go and kill the traitor yeah. and Horus is like well I will you just watch me Erebus without like seeing a change really happen just he's gone from the last book where yeah okay so the last book reveals at the end that he was bad and stole this weapon thing right but it doesn't reveal that to the other characters mm -hmm. um, and 
literally it, it just says that he was like really helpful and like good to have around and yeah. that everyone everyone trusted him like there was nobody who was like god this guy's just trying to be too nice yeah and and like you say on this bit we've just read or this bit we've just talked about he's like a sort of warm tongue character yep. beside horace being like ooh, you know like just trying to wind him up and and get him to do things uh but yeah, it's almost, it's almost like, so Dan Abnett in his last book, he told the audience that he's bad. So now the audience know he's bad. Don't have to do any work. <laughs> um, let's just make him a, like an arch demon. Yeah. Um, it's just, oh, it's frustrating. There's a, there is a quote, um, this, this sort of sparkling line of writing um, did have me chuckling. Just, it's so, it's so terrible. Um, Horace is in the yurt. Um, Horace passed amongst those closest to him, shaking hands and dazzling them with his easy charm and spontaneous wit. Like, now, you can't write that line. Like, you have to write him with an easy charm and showing yeah. spontaneous wit. You can't write easy charm and spontaneous wit. It is it, a, a big problem, these books. There's a lot of things you're just told repeatedly. It's like... Um, and for Horace, I mean, to be fair, that description has a bit more detail in it than a lot of them do. It's just like a lot of the time you're just told that you know people are just overcome with awe when they see him, and and you're just repeatedly yeah. told that. Just like you're also repeatedly told, like, oh, it's unthinkable that you know Astartes could fight Astartes. Um, but yeah, but I mean that that happens all the time in these books. <laughs> but it's something that I, I I thought getting towards the end of this of this section. Um, Horace is like considered to be this master of manipulation and uh, of of sort of sidetracking conversations when they're going into directions he doesn't want. He can subtly manoeuvre them, but it's just so easy. For, uh, oh, it's something we should say. Abaddon and Erebus exchange a lodge medal at this point. Oh, yeah. And, and Carcassy notices this, doesn't he? Carcassy notices this. I just like it's I remember it because it's like the last line of the chapter or something like that. It's just mentioned, and then... Carcassy is speaking to Woken, and, er and Abaddon's there, and Carcassy says to... What was the silver coin uh, you gave Erebus when you met him? And then Abaddon like, oh, yeah. gets furious. Lunges at him. Yeah. Abaddon furiously paced the interior of the yurt like a caged animal. Um then at this point again after the yurt thing um sorry after the lodge thing in the last book Wilkins now back to being like he wants no part of it even though he like was he had a great old time at the last meeting <laughs> like you know he stayed for the entire thing and they were drinking he was just saying you know what this isn't that bad but this is where i want to talk about the humor as well can we yeah okay can we, can we get deep into hum uh, you've held off humorous you great discipline so <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, there's a, qu a quote which I think is lovely writing. It really made me laugh. Um, but it's it's written with such like an immediacy and with um, real energy. It says, Lucan felt the humours in his blood swing wildly out of balance at the mention of sorcery. And <laughs> like to be able to feel the balance of your blood change. Now, that's that is a real reaction to, to the mention of sorcery but also oh so the, the Mornival are the four humors <laughs> yeah. oh shit I didn't even think about that <laughs> <laughs> right hold on let's do this 
Right. So we've got uh, a badin. He is. Um, he's collar. He's pure collar. <laughs> uh, uh, melancholia. Is that Lucan? Was that Axeman? It might be Axemand. Um, um, phlegmatic. That would be Lucan. But sanguine. You know, who's the most sanguine of that lot? Come on. If it's not Lucan, if he's not a sanguine motherfucker, who is? <laughs> um, Come on, I'm, I'm willing to go to bat for this. I'm willing to have an argument no, with the Let me have a look at this. Fucking hell, um, uh, if you don't know a sanguine person... Oh, man. It's Lucan. What are you talking about? No, dude. Right, I've just Googled it. It's definitely Turgadon. Listen to this. He's sanguine. Optimistic or positive, especially in an apparently bad or difficult situation. Oh, fuck. How many times does that guy crack a joke just when some demons, like, you know, misted somebody or something like that? (laughs) Yeah. There is a bit, there's a bit later on, a tremendous bit, where they're fighting. I won't, I won't spoil the type of creature they're fighting. (laughs) Logan kills it by ripping its arms off and it just dies. It's really funny. Um, that the think, end of your anecdote. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, he rips its arm off, followed by geezers of spurting life juice. Yeah. And that's it. Um, okay, so collar is out. So we've got phlegmatic. We've got melancholic. I would say melancholic is Aximand, right? Yeah. It, so we've got phlegmatic. Yeah. Oh, but that's it. I mean, Logan is the double threat. He's both phlegmatic and sanguine. Well, so he doesn't fit in the Mournival, is that what it is? Well, maybe that's maybe that's the problem. Yeah. You know, because he get, he gets on Horace's bad side in um, later on in this book, and maybe it's because he's showing signs of uh, of phlegm along with his blood. Maybe. Um, we do we all know, know what like, happens when the humors get out oh of God, blood. they're absolute. Yeah. Okay, so is is it fucking stupid that we have not realized this? By this point, no. I think it probably is. Maybe, but um, this is probably embarrassing for us. <laughs> Woken is now increasingly convinced that Erebus is lying. About yes, stuff. But we're not at this point. We're not sure why exactly. Yeah. So, so he knew, like, he brought Carcassy to this because he didn't trust Erebus, but we don't know yet why, which sort of. Well, any tension that could have been produced by that is completely done away, isn't it? Because it's it's like saying, I don't trust him. Let me tell you why I don't trust him. Instead of, let's develop that lack of trust over the course of a book. Yeah. You've, got, you've got enough pages. It did seem to just quite quickly jump into it. And then, then we go into the section that we've talked about where Carcassy is talking to Wendu and we've already kind of talked about that so just after that scene um, uh, Carcassy sees Euphrates Keeler uh, going about like distributing literature for the Lactitio Divinitatis um, in the like the retreat bit where they all the remembrance are hanging out yeah, and this place seemed really fun. Like all the 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 drunks and gamblers had um, chipped off all the gilt from the walls and used them as gambling chips, and the the painters had like whitewashed some of the walls so that they could draw. Then there's a scene with um, 
Petronella, the Remembrancer, is getting sort of more accepted by Horus and yeah, yeah, this is where she is like literally fully accepted as his personal documentarist. Um, like he teases her about something and she basically tells him to fuck off. Like she's that's cool. Like she's um, she's just like, I want to do this. I'm really good at it. But if you're going to be a dick, I'm out of here. And he's like, oh, there's a there's a firecracker in you. He doesn't use that term for her. But he's like, oh, you, there's a fighter in you. Um and she says that she will immortalize him. There's a like a really recurrent theme throughout that kind of gets it, it gets written in the subtext, which later becomes you know the the, the text. But um, Horace is sort of uh, terrified of being forgotten. Yeah, uh, he's fully aware of his talents and his skills and his achievements. And the idea of not having people sort of bow down to him is really terrifies him. And it's clear that the most the thing he wants most of all is to be remembered as this great hero. And at this point, I started to think like he is getting uh, he's frustrated that the emperor will always be above him. Uh, th th there's no way that he will be remembered as he wants to be when there's somebody like the Emperor on the scene as well. Yeah, I forgot to say that Yugen Temba, this guy that's apparently rebelled, and they're all really upset about this. Yugen Temba's actually on the moon of Davin, and they would get ready to send down an extermination force, as they're describing it, so not just yeah. to, like, conquer, but to actually destroy. Um, and, and they've really, like... Um, they're not messing about. They're sort of sending down a massive force. Loads of titans. Yeah, it's like total overkill because they don't have any... Like, they're just a bunch of humans, aren't they? Like, they, they don't have any Astartes or anything. Um, so it is total overkill. And the... Um, did, did you catch that uh, Torgadon mentions that he's the hero of Spiderland? <laughs> yeah, Spiderland is actually like he 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 mentioned Spiderland. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and that they didn't call it Spiderland in in book one. They didn't, no. apart from in like the the title of the section. Yeah, um, Brotherhood. It just doesn't seem it doesn't seem a very Astartes thing to say. No, but then <laughs> so Petronella is kind of seeing this force getting ready to um, go down, and it's this is the bit, isn't it, where <clears throat> uh, where Horace. Um, gets his takes his oath of moment from the Mournival and I was just I was struck by how easy it is for him because there everybody around him is like stunned into like practical immobility by the magn the magnanimity of the act there's a line that says um, they were quietly dumbfounded by the war master's humility which just seems a really weird scene yeah. That like he's he's got everyone so much on a string. He's not really using his powers for evil as yet, but they are so showing that that's all kind of set up there if he chose to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, he's like they'll follow him into anything. Yeah, and do anything for him, which is this book is sort of about. Really, it's about what uh, what the Mournival will do for uh, Horus. Yeah, so then, then you get this 
scene of all the military hardware and stuff landing on the planet and that's pretty cool um, this is where it turns fucking great yeah <laughs> like yeah. this this up until now i had been thinking um it's not been great but when it when it gets down to it's a plague planet it's dirty it's gross it's a bog there's like poisonous gas in the air that's where the descriptions just start popping off the page it's fucking brilliant yeah i've got a note saying this is like the best chapter yet and i think in terms of like uh, i think i meant not just in this book but in this handle aspect and um they land on this planet and there's some really good descriptions of it. it's completely corrupted with sort of plague and disease and and the the, the language in the in the in the book conveys that so well that it's just this unbreathable dirty wet boggy horrible place i i thought it was brilliant yeah it is really good it's really um atmospheric and they've got another another voice starts oh yeah 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 that's right um bringing to mind the uh one the samus voice from the last book uh, but uh this one isn't magical they the um they can decipher that it's from a a normal vox signal from a ship yeah so they they kind of know where it's coming from i'm like Wilkins getting a bad vibe about this planet and that's uh basically that's the end of part one yeah so they're yeah they they're it's like misty so there's no uh there's no sight lines um and they are attacked by putrefied humans uh that were part of you yeah Yugentemba's men uh it's 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 real good it's really gross i've got a great quote uh, about how gross it is um and yeah uh, petronella's ship uh had left to land as well and because they couldn't see where they were going they start streaking directly for a titan which shoots them out of the sky that's good stuff yeah she she goes down to the planet um sort of secretly she's not meant to do it but she kind of thinks that horus hinted that she should kind of thing yeah he i think it was like he had a gleam in his eye or you know something that she just completely made up for herself yeah so she oh yeah we've completely forgot about her like bodyguard oh yeah i mean he might become more important later but he saves her horace gives him a pat on the back he falls in love with horace yeah um he but he's like he's had his um like vocal cords removed or something he can't speak yeah um it's so like in some some kind of slave system or something like that uh that he's part of uh but she can hear his thoughts in some way can she yeah he in, at the start of the book um <coughs> she gave him an order and he walked away and there was some way was it her auto quill or whatever it's called wrote yeah because it was linked to what he was thinking oh, some yeah. way but anyway they so he fights off all these undead creatures so basically 
it's a little bit confusing at times, but I think this in this bit they're being attacked by basically two types of monsters, one of which is basically sort of dead people brought back to life, and another of which is kind of like more specifically like demon things with one eye and distended oh, yeah. stomachs yeah. and big horns. Fat, big fat swollen Nurgle monsters yeah. and skeletons. Yeah, so there's they fight through some of them and they find um, the ship that the signal is coming from and it's Hugen Temba's flagship the glory of Terra mm-hmm. um, and then there's a kind of an argument about how they're going to approach this that's right Erebus is like let's go everybody we gotta get in we gotta get in and Lokin is like whoa it's obviously a trap and Erebus calls into question the bravery or the loyalty or whatever of the uh, Sons of Horus and Loken's just like yo hold up a minute asshole but Horus says no we're going in and Loken talks to Horus and tells him kind of tells him like it is uh, do you care about our opinions because uh, you normally use us as like fake uh, advisors when in fact you know exactly what it is you want to do because we shouldn't be doing this uh, Erebus is too keen I have my suspicions about him um, and Horus says no I care about your opinions how can you say that anyway we are going in and you and Torgadin can guard the rear which is a terrible thing I think yeah they're, they're, all, they're like put out by that because they've they're they're sort of bringing a couple of like comparative no marks into the <laughs> fight with them, aren't yeah. they? And they're weaving back to the Mornival to just what they see as a shit sort of task. And oh. but everybody else sees it as that as well. Yeah, <laughs> like it, it. It's not them perceiving it as punishment. It it is everyone perceives it as that. Yeah. Um, I've got a note down that says page forty eight, classic Torgadon bands. Um, <laughs> God, Bantz. It's not even that good. Um, It's not his best. But uh, it's funny just how, like, uh, Woken responds, being like, that was the Turgadon that Woken knew and loved. After he says (laughs) a really funny joke. I I just want, at some point, um, for somebody to break, like, for him to do it at the most inopportune (laughs) moment, and for, like, Woken to just go, holy shit, now... No, really not. <laughs> yeah, um, but they don't. They love it. Um, oh, yeah, he's just... He's a fool. <laughs> then they do basically get attacked and they lose contact with... Like, Woken and Torgadon lose contact with Horus and all the rest of them that have gone to the ship. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I can't really remember, even though I read it today, uh, <laughs> th- this bit. At, at some part, like, this is a huge ship... Like, it's a space vessel on the surface of the planet. It was a bit unclear to me as well, yeah. Somehow this, like, ship was propped up in a certain way and it kind of upends itself and causes a massive splash of all this horrible water and shit, basically, that's all over the planet. And then Horus ends up on his own. Yeah, and he uh, wanders through the core of the ship because he's been on it before. And he remembers it, so he goes to the flight deck or the the bridge, and finds um, 
Kemba and the body of Moy, one of the nomarchs. Yeah. Um, he gets into a conversation with Temba where it's obvious that Temba's not really... Like, he's possessed by some sort of demonic force. Well, yeah, he's a hugely corpulent, rotting... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I didn't need to have a conversation to, to get this. He's like, Love the way you? I just totally older, over, undersold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's uh, a two-ton mass of maggots. I mean, well, I'm like, Horace gets the sense that something wasn't quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Horace's opening line is, Tampa, there's something different about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, does Horace turn in a bit weird? Is that what leads him into chaos? Or is it chaos influence that's making him turn a bit weird? Um, I'm kind of talking about up to this point in the book, because it that sometimes doesn't seem clear to me, but at this point, it is uh, like Temba offers him all the power of chaos, and Horus is like, "You've been led astray. There is no, there are no gods in the warp. It's just uh, elemental." And Temba's like, "No, it's totally directed. Uh, elemental forces, but totally directed." And I think doesn't he literally say? Um, it's your ambition that will make you strong and that y- you can have it all by joining them. I think it's a, it's, a real, it's a real attempt to turn him without any of the bullshit. Because um, like he, whenever he brings the sword up to his face, he, like, he whispers the name of Horus to it. And that's it. That's the, him giving the sword the target. Yeah. So, so before that, he wasn't targeted. You see what I mean? Like, I, I think right. they were they were literally trying to. Uh, that was their attempt at turning him without the need for it. Mm. Um. And is the the first mention of the future, with uh, the emperor dead, and all fall into bureaucracy and superstition. Yeah, I thought that I, I liked that, but. Um, uh, just like another bit that comes up later where they sort of I think are basically flashing forward to what you know the world does become after this yeah. or the universe becomes after the story is, is played out and that's a theme that comes up I think in this book more than um, more than the first one maybe that like this is basically um, things are just unfolding following some kind of you know um providential sort of pattern whether that's a pattern kind of seen laid out by the emperor or some other uh god that's on on their side or whether it's a pattern laid out by chaos but people from both sides can kind of see the pattern and are trying to kind of manipulate it or or um set things in motion you know what i mean like uh yeah this kind of theme which i think is like what <coughs> says a lot about like actually speaks to a lot of like the way these books are written and, and what they're about and what people get out of them is like I think a lot of the way that like stuff's marketed at least to fans is like you know what you're gonna find out in this book like you know rather than a story being told it's like this is the bit of the lore that's gonna be <laughs> yeah un- uncovered yeah. in this book um 
which maybe sometimes explains why like characters are quite badly drawn in some cases because it's like oh but we're not revealing what Erebus is really about yet you know or we're not revealing such and such a thing because that's um, we can do that in another book somewhere down the line. I don't know. I don't know if that's. No, wide. no. I think I think I think you're right. It all sort of goes back to what we were talking in the last episode about what the the difference between lore and uh, like a narrative story. Yeah. Uh, so this thing will be revealed. This, like you know, when you fall down a, a Wikipedia hole and you just start clicking through and reading about different unconnected but still interesting things yeah. that's like what the lore is and so we'll we'll be revealing um the origins of how magnus lost his eye or something like that but that's completely separate from all the stories that are happening around him it's just a sort of completely self-contained piece of information in amongst all these other networks of information but they're not tied together nicely I think, yeah i think it's it's quite sort of interesting how that sort of that idea how it positions the author as like not someone who's making things up but someone that's just uncovering things it almost treats you know it's a way of thinking that because which is has some truth to it because the war for something like this becomes a shared universe you know administered by dozens of authors, dozens of people working for the companies that make products related to this world, um, fans, you know, that run wikis and stuff like that. So it's not, you know, it's not one person's creation yeah. at this point anyway. You know, like Star Wars, I guess, you know, at one point was George Lucas's creation, but now it's in the hands of, um, you know, heaps of script writers and writers of books and yeah. writers of games and all that so like in a sense it is a reality that exists outside of any one person and that's i think somehow times how the readers maybe or or how this is sold to readers is like we're uncovering some a bit of the truth that already exists to you rather than we're making up a good story to entertain you yeah and i, I think leads to i think it's it, it very naturally leads to the kind of widespread shit that that last Star Wars film got um, because it tried to do something super interesting with the Jedi yeah. um, and it was saying like everything that you thought you knew we're, we're completely doing a, a retake on that whereas the super fans don't want that, they know that already they want something new uncovered yeah, they're like, we just want to know a little bit more about the stuff that we already know kind of thing. Yeah, like. Exactly, exactly. And so I think I think feeding into that, it, it is a sort of very natural that you get some of that super fan bullshit. Um, yeah, another thing that, I mean, you already mentioned quite an interesting detail, I thought, that Horus is on this ship on his own and he remembers the way out of it from 70 years ago, right? Yeah. And I thought, like, this kind of just highlighted to me another missed opportunity, in a way, of these books. Because Horus, um, or even any of the the space marines, the Astartes, we're basically told that like no one knows how long they could live for. They could potentially live forever. 
uh, yeah. unless they're killed, right? And like, I feel like, you know, sci-fi, good sci-fi is about just interesting ideas, really, and sometimes they're quite uh, like little differences between you know what it's like to be a person living in the real world now and what an imagined future. Or, or some other setting, and 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 something that's different about that, and how that changes the way that you think or the way that you live. And and I kind of just thought, like, what's it like to be? What's it like to have a potentially eternal lifespan and like remember, and and also such a great mind or whatever is like they keep on telling us Horace has, and to remember things like the the way out of like one ship he was on once seventy years ago. Yeah, and like. Presumably he's got all kinds of stuff like that in his head, just sitting there. And, like, it just it tells you all the time that Horus is a superhuman, but I don't think that there's any real attempt to um, go into any detail and really say something about what, what's the meaning of that, you know? But um, it's, it's kind of like... Um, if you think about it in, in, in the terms of uh, Lord of the Rings and when, what Tolkien does is uh the elves are basically immortal except yeah. for battle but what he does well is he he describes the sort of the uh, the dark present for the elves because they remember everything when it was good yeah and they they remember all the good times and there is a sort of mournful aspect to them yeah because whenever one of them dies like people have known th- them for a thousand years and that's a thousand years worth of memories and stories in that person's head that's gone yeah yeah and and that does it quite well um it would be something to write about Horus as he uh comes to terms with the fact that he could be whatever he wants to be but is a soldier and so he could be eternal but he keeps putting himself in positions where he can die um and i I mean it does it does go into a bit of detail about how he so wants to be remembered but that's just because he's really vain um but it would be really interesting to have somebody come to terms with the fact that they're superhuman they're immortal but they they will die at some point because they've been created to yeah so th- this is the bit where he goes on about so he actually says like the the tagline of warhammer 40k doesn't he where he's like um always grim darkness or something like that that's the bit uh where he's looking ahead to the future that will so this is what i'm talking about this sort of providential sense of like there's some chat about like if taurus does or doesn't do certain things yeah yeah so um well, no, isn't that when uh, he kills Temba and uh, he gets stabbed in the shoulder using the anatheme, yeah. which was stolen in the previous book by Erebus. But um, in being stabbed, he uh, like he just completely eviscerate, eviscerates Temba. And um, as Temba lies dying, he comes back to himself and apologizes to Horus but he admits that he was turned willingly to chaos is that where he says but I've seen the future and the future is with the emperor dead 
and the whole Imperium fallen to bureaucracy and to superstition yeah. and only and only you can stop this yes yeah and um yeah so so yeah we know that it's going to be Horus that causes this um so we're like uh we know more than you Horus but whatever Horus does he he will be the cause for this the emperor will be dead but he will also be alive sort of and the 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 universe of 40k as opposed to 30k um is exactly that kind of bureaucratic uh nightmarishly uh fascistic um worldview that uh he so is is so desperate to avoid yeah and it's like constant war and i was thinking about this uh in the last couple of days of like how as far as i can tell like there's basically not that much difference between the technology um, of this time in these books and the time of like excuse me um, 10,000 years later and presumably it's a bit it's a bit better in 30k than 40k oh is it right uh, yeah because in some of the 40k books the, they say things like the the masters of back then we we can't hold a candle to that and um some machines can are still running from then right. but um nobody knows how, quite how to pre- repair them so that they're good as new they're always slightly falling to bits so okay. it's a real it's it's the dark ages compared to you know this this era of of enlightenment basically yeah so like yeah so not only have yeah things not got better they've actually got worse during that time so it's just yeah because they're locked in war and um, but whether whether that's literally true or not you know it's it it could just be they look back to this golden golden past um yeah when when in fact it may be but i think the point is still meant to be generally even if it's a little bit better a little bit worse that like you know obviously ten thousand years ago from now like you know, obviously, technology. I'm talking about the Earth here in real yeah. life. Uh, the um, it's a lot different, and yeah. much more advanced. Uh, so hold uh, up, hold up. Can you can you explain <laughs> maybe one or two of those ways <laughs> where um, it's different? I'd like you to explain to me what life was like um, in what it it thousand before the Common Era please will and i think you'll find it's largely the same <laughs> i think you're right um we've just been stagnating um, um i mean we haven't developed monomo monomo quills for a start uh, so what the hell are we doing that's true um, um so i've actually got a, a a quote that i've passed over but i i was so I was so pleased when I read it. I thought it was brilliant. That I really want to put it in now. I just it's sort of lost of all its context now, but that's fine. Um it was when all the um slaying of the uh Nurgle monsters outside. Um it was a really good description. The blade roared as it slew gobbets of wet grey meat, splattering his armor as he ripped the sword through from brain pan to groin. <laughs> 
<laughs> brain, brain pan. <laughs> we have not paid enough attention attention to that kind of stuff. <laughs> I have to say uh, to everyone that the um, the battle scenes in this are tremendous. Like that 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 is, I think, the best example of language that's used in it. But um, oh yeah, the, like things just get ripped to pieces they get battered with their own limbs um and temba he uh he's like a big sort of corpulent gross thing and his skin is all stretched over him and you can see the maggots roiling under his skin it's a it's it's very good we're just about to get to the first character that i actually thought i really like this guy okay let's do it right um but anyway, sorry, we're just we're finishing off this chapter where Horus gets stabbed by the anatheme, the weapon that um, if you speak someone's name, then it kind of, like, gets to their worst vulnerabilities, I suppose, or, like, uh, the rest of the Mournival get into the ship and they find him and he's in a kind of a state, isn't he? Um, yeah. Uh, I'll read the line. So, like, like a slow-moving avalanche or a mountain top wind, the Warmaster collapsed. <laughs> It's like choose one. <laughs> like a bird in flight or a mammal with wings. <laughs> I know that's the problem because it's like they're kind of similar but they're not the same thing. You know, any like, a, a, any flying thing would do. <laughs> Basically, he was flying. No, yeah, I I totally I totally it's like, get, yeah. Yeah, um anyway, he falls over. Chapter 9 begins in a place we haven't been before. Um, and uh, it's all talking about pyramid roofs. Oh, for real? Yeah, nice. <laughs> see, see. Yeah, no, he's the, yeah, no, good character, good um, character. So we're in Tizca, the so-called city of light, and there's colonnades and boulevards. It's peaceful, soaring towers of silver and gold. Libraries a, everywhere. A world of learning. A city of gilded libraries, arts museums, and sprawling seats of learning. So this is. This where the thousand suns are, another space marine. Uh, I keep on getting mixed up between chapter and legion. Uh, chapters are subdivisions of legions. Okay, space marine legion, right? So, um, and Magnus, you'll never be a lore master. No, I, I, not with a question like that. No, <laughs> that was extremely basic. It's, it's um, absolutely humiliating for you. <laughs> so we're introduced to another Primarch. Magnus the Red, um, Primarch of the Thousand Sons Legion, and he's standing on the balcony of his pyramid. He's the best Primarch. He, he does appear to be. Um, <laughs> a towering giant with a lustrous mane of red hair. And he's got, he's one-eyed, Magnus the one-eyed. Yep. Um, so he's like Odin, he's clever. Um, didn't Odin, what, did he give up his eyes so that he could see the future? And Ma- like that, yeah. uh, Magnus can Magnus has foresight as well, um, and he, but his one good eye is golden with uh, flecks of <coughs> scarlet. He lives in a pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> he presides over a planet of libraries and museums, and he lives in a pyramid. And he's I I, I could do that. I would love that. <laughs> he's got a lustrous mane of red hair. And then he get, then it gets even cooler in the next bit because uh, you find out he's into sorcery. He's a magician, <laughs> like a proper a proper magician, not not sort of pick a card. 
yeah. he he does like good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's getting annoyed. He throws a goblet because he remembers being humbled by the emperor. Because so I quite like this bit where he's talking about Magnus and his interest in sorcery, and it's in so it's kind of a he's got a different spin, I think, than anyone thus far has on the sort of relationship between um, religion and the powers of the warp and the 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 kind of imperial ideology. So he's basically saying he he thinks he could convince the emperor and the other primarchs, or he thinks they should understand that um, if you've seen the wonders and beauty of uh, what's in the warp, basically what's beyond the veil of reality, that when you see that, notions of good and evil fall by the wayside next to that power, um, for they were the antiquated concept of a religious society long cast aside. So he's kind of saying, like, this is actually not some religious stuff, actually. Just kind of suggesting that, you know, as the whole book's are really about, that the emperor's ideology is, is a religious thing in its own right and he's saying actually when you when you see this face to face you realize it's just all chaos there's no you know it's yeah it's but but also that like it it's <coughs> it is functional and that they just don't understand it enough yet yeah. and so so it appears like magic but when when you study it and when you learn it just like anything else it's uh you know the the religious things that are like like surround it will fade away because yes. you just understand how it works uh, yeah um, i thought that was quite interesting because he's just saying it's actually like when you understand this stuff it's the opposite of religion you know it's, it's yeah it does away it's, with the religious concepts it's just like any other form of knowledge um but also like it, it, it's clear that he is like his hubris is as great as anybody's because he's like he he feels that he controls it enough already to be honest and that he he doesn't think he has complete understanding but he thinks that he um he knows an awful lot more than he does yeah um and we should say that he has had uh a nightmare at this point and he's sort of recovering from it and he's seen what's going to happen he's seen that Horus is in a terrible situation and that it's going to lead to calamity and that he knows that the Emperor knows nothing about it and is not in a position to do anything about it. Sorry, it just there's more there's more stuff that just makes you think Magnus is cool here. Where like So after he's thrown his goblet and got pissed off about that, he picks it up again, fills he- it up, returns to his chambers and says inside it was cool and the scent of various inks and parchments made him smile. Yeah. Uh, the, the wide chamber was filled with bookshelves and glass cabinets filled with curios and remnants of lost knowledge gleaned from conquered worlds. Um, yeah, that's cool. Just cool. Um, so, yeah, it's going on, but knowledge has been a refuge for Magnus. Um, a- except except the, uh, the, the conquered... The remnants of conquered nations. I mean, oh, presumably yeah, yeah. Conquered he worlds. conquered those nations. Yeah, that's you know, true. Like. That's true. <laughs> um, he, still, he still ultimately is one of the primarchs who we forces of uh soldiers that go and like totally destroy yeah so, so what, uh, other cultures for him exist best in glass curios rather God, yeah. than just n- now i've suddenly now i'm like he's just like he's just like a imperialist collector basically <laughs> yeah he's yeah he's um he's like any of those uh victorian people who dedicated their lives to sort of ransacking other cultures and then accumulating all kinds of amorphous shit 
and then dying and making it into a museum. God, yeah, now he just seems awful as well, in a different <laughs> way. Sorry about that, Will. It's all right. Um, you, th- you thought you'd find somebody to root for. But no. No, he's just... Um, he's just the British Museum. <laughs> um, he's also got thralls. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. His, <laughs> his, his servants are called thralls, which... I don't know the origin of that word. Is it Greek? Yeah, I don't know. Is it slave? Like it's yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah, that's... yeah. Basically, uh, Araman comes in at this this point, but essentially, they're going to do a big spell there on on Tiska, and no, Tiska's the city, isn't it? Tiska's the city on Prospero. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're going to contact the emperor with magic to let him know, and through doing this, the emperor will be like. Oh whoa! This magic shit. Let's let's get in on that. <laughs> um, that is that is the the sort of depth of Magnus's thinking. So maybe he thinks he thinks highly of his own intelligence. Maybe not quite the sharpest tool in the box. And it's also specifically he's, he's, he's they're wanting to warn the emperor about Horus, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that yes, Magnus doesn't know that Horus. At least I don't think um, that Magnus knows that Horus is going to be the source of all this. I think he just thinks that Horus is in trouble, right, and and has a decision to make. Yeah, because so yeah, so he's trying to get a message to the emperor that there is danger in relation yeah. to Horus, right? Um, oh yeah, but then at the end they say, um, yes, but gather them, but await my r- arrival before beginning. Horus may yet surprise us. Okay. So that way they're expecting them to fall to evil potentially, but he yeah. may not. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, now Woken. So now we get back to the Mournville just after um, Horus has fallen over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tripped. And they're, and they're massively stressing out. Yeah, it's. This is boring. <laughs> <laughs> this is this um yeah this whole bit doesn't work for me at all yeah but they're stressing out they're stressing out hard um the notes that i took for this bit Loken is sad about sums up yeah um and so they all start rushing around and getting like apothecaries and stuff to try and help racing back to the the ship yeah, so they they get back in the ship, um, and they they basically the crowds have heard that um, horse is dead, like, and so they're all wailing and weeping, and uh, they're all like gathering round the embarkation deck, but the Astartes need to get away through to the apothecarian. That's the word, and um, basically kill everyone in their way. Just bash them off the walls just yeah. to get them out the way. Uh, kind of brutal. Like it does. It does feel. It is. I mean, it's not shocking. Is the wrong word. It's not. It's not shocking. But it's. Um. It's not nothing. I mean, I, yeah. I kind of thought it was shocking because. I mean, I suppose they're they're trying to say that they're so gripped with. But I. I just, it kind of just seems weird to me that like. Woken is just as much of a part of that as any of the others. Oh, you know? t- totally, totally. And but it all goes to the sort of developing point of, um, 
like what would you do if the uh if your brothers um turned to chaos what would you do uh, would you choose us or them do you remember in the, the last book when uh Loken went to keeler's apartments um, oh, right, she, yeah. yeah so um in this part he took his side which was with his own kind and not with humans normal humans yeah um and they say this like uh, Malagurst is talking with the guy whose name I can't remember uh, and the the naval guy says uh, this is an atrocity and somebody needs to swing for this like we need uh, we need payback we need justice and Malagurst is, is all like I don't know how to do that I don't know how to serve up one of my brothers uh, so that people can see justice being done so it's a question of uh, what kind of what kind of system is this? If the Astartes are really to protect the people, then are are they subject to laws or not? You know, so yeah. I mean, that's another <clears throat> another direction that another sort of vein that could have been. I mean, I say wait for them to explore in these books, but oh, wait, we're saying they're already. They've only up. got sixty novels, <laughs> and they're already they're already operating within a framework that kind of presumably restricts quite a lot what they can do but there could have been and, and there is a certain amount made of it but there you know here where like carcassy is a, like goes away starts writing stuff about this atrocity but there could have been more made of the idea that like a start is like when I mean, it does come through to a certain extent but it's not really discussed much like they don't give a shit about the normal people mm-hmm. um, and Loken's a bit different in that regard uh you know, and at least taking an interest in the remembrancers and stuff like that, but um, that could have been a stronger theme, I think, the idea that, you know, there's this growing separation between you know, starters are ostensibly serving humanity as a whole, but starting to see themselves as something separate and that, you know, what are they doing for themselves kind of thing and why are we doing yeah. all this for... Like, the, it is, it's mentioned. Like, it, it's not as if this thing isn't... That the the authors aren't aware of this, but it's it's not developed in the book. It's mentioned in discussions because most of the it, there's always discussions happening, like big <laughs> meaty discussions. Nothing is ever nothing unfolds naturally. It's it's always done through big discussions. But they they talk about you know what is high as an Astartes human. You know it, if you remove fear from an Astartes, if you remove the possibility that they'll die from old age and then separate them into the, these legions and separate them from any kind of normal life, why would they uh, s- still feel allegiance to normal people? But yeah, they, they talk about it and then they talk about something else. At this point, uh, well, a few things happen. We go back to the Titan people, the Titan crew, and like at one point, that Jonah Arakan character had been criticizing this other guy Titus for following the lectitio divina, divinitatis. You um, haven't you haven't got that word right once yet. No, divinitatis, divinitatis, <laughs> right? And and, and now because Horus is following and all this, like the the Titan crew kind of come together and want him to bring them in on that, basically, and then. Um, Wilkins talking to one of the apothecaries who says he's basically saying like what can I do to help 
um, Horus, and the apothecary says, "Well, maybe if you found the the weapon that he was stabbed with, that might yeah might help but him." Th- th- I don't know if you got this. I, I kind of got it that they were just searching for something to do <laughs> yeah he's like and fuck, then, get, the fuck <laughs> get the fuck out of here it's like um would it help if we find the weapon like yeah like <laughs> like yeah find the weapon i don't know get out of here <laughs> you know it just it really felt like that and they were like yes okay so what you're telling me is it'll definitely work we'll find the weapon all right let's go <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's like when they come back with it he's like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's a sword, mate. What am I going to do with that? I'm a doctor. <laughs> he was stabbed. I knew that when you brought him in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's... Horus sort of starts spilling out his... Like, oh, this is the worst bit. Like, he starts having a deathbed confessional. And he goes into, like, a fucking libertarian rant. <laughs> <laughs> like, he starts talking about bureaucracy. Oh, yeah. And, and and how um, he's won all of these planets and now they're ruled over by tax collectors and people not fit to lick his boots. Yeah. And I was just, I was like, this is the least convincing deathbed confessional I've ever seen, read or heard about. Like, he's totally <laughs> lucid. And the one thing he wants to do with his last words is have a fucking moan about yeah. all his brothers like <laughs> he was like oh when I was made a war master some of them were total dicks to me like only a couple of them bowed their heads but I forgot about this paragraph this is like I remember reading this and thinking this is just like total Brexit chat here because yeah? <laughs> <laughs> it goes straight um, bureaucracy and officialdom are taking over Miss Vivar red tape administrators and quirks are replacing the heroes of the age unless we change our ways our greatness as an empire will soon be a footnote in the history oh books. god like what do you think like it's 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 wrong to put like these are the words that the author wrote for Horace this is Horace saying them not the author um, he, 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 he turned into an evil demon monster because of red tape like because of his because of his fear of officialdom and then, it's the most it's the most unbelievable uh, dying man speech that I've ever heard I need to just get this off my chest that the, the bureaucrats won't win <laughs> I, I work for the civil service by the way just, <laughs> just, just so everyone knows yeah everyone knows where you stand now Neil <laughs> I love red tape I am red tape <laughs> So basically, Loken and Targaden have gone down to um, yeah. get back the sword. Get back the sword. Uh, and while this is going on, Erebus and Aximund and Abaddon have a meeting. Yes, they're training together. Yeah. Um, now I have a quote. Well, holy <laughs> shit! Let me just let me just say it. It's introducing a new word for us. Um, Abaddon and Aximund are talking. I know, sighed Abaddon, but I'm all over the place. Choleric, melancholic, saturnine, all of them at the same time. <laughs> now, now that is a man with unbalanced humours. <laughs> Although, saturnine, 
I don't even know. I don't even know what Saturdine what is. is. Saturdine, go and look it up. Uh, Google that one. Gloomy, some uh, melancholic and gloomy. I don't know. I think he's maybe right. being tautologist there. To be honest, he's being prolix at the same time as choleric, <laughs> melancholic, and Saturnine. All of them at the same time. <laughs> Lodge meeting is called. Yeah. Uh, so everyone's there, apart from, uh, apart from Torgadin, who's down on the planet. And, and Logan's down on the planet as well. But he wouldn't have gone anyway, because he's oh, yeah, he, he wasn't yeah. uh, a member anyway. Erebus tells them of uh, the Davanite Serpent Lodge, uh, which sounds totally above board. Um, <laughs> uh, a place of healing, the Serpent Lodge. Um that uh, they might be able to help and somebody goes sounds a bit like sorcery and he goes if it is sorcery does that matter surely the only thing that matters is helping Horus and everyone is like yep you're absolutely right apart from Aximand who does a little bit of chin scratching um, a little bit of uh, performative uh, questioning and then he's like no you're absolutely right we have to go Woken and Torgadon get back down to the planet and they find it's it's changed a lot from when they were there a few hours ago so the kind of the you know it's kind of showing you that the chaos spell has been broken all the the kind of decay and stuff that was there before is is starting to disappear um, yeah yeah and dry up and sort of desiccate and fall to pieces and that yeah and then they get inside the the ship and basically they they get to the room where um, Horus faced Temba, uh, and they they find um, the sword there, basically the anatheme, don't they? They find the sword, and it's uh, the case it comes in, and they see that the writing on the case and the blade, I think, is Kinnebrack, and so Loken knows that this is the the stolen sword from uh, Zenobia, the the planet of the Interrex from book one. And he's like, oh, everything starts falling in place for him because the only way it could be here is that it was stolen from them. It went with the fleet and somehow was given from somebody on the fleet to uh, Temba here. And that could really only be Erebus. Yeah. What's the what's really good about this is like this all occurs to Lucan and uh along comes Torgadon, clumping along, just jumps in, just goes <laughs> Hey, hey, you look a bit you look upset. What's up? <laughs> and 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 Lokan goes, Oh, uh nothing, Tarek. And he goes, No, no. something's wrong, what's up? And he's like something is up but i i can't tell you and then in one brief moment of of lucidity and self-understanding Tarek torgadon goes listen looking i'm not a complete idiot i know that that's kinnebrack i know that it had to come i know that it had to come from the fleet and that somebody had to give it to them i know i know that there must be a traitor I'm not an idiot. And <laughs> like I'm just like oh one 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 brief moment of self-understanding. So so that uh, 
at this point, um, the Lodge have uh, gone and taken Horus and uh, Loken and Tarek go up and find that uh, the Lodge have taken him and they've taken him to this Davenite uh, church, basically. But they, they hear that while they're still on the planet, don't they? They get word of that. Um, yeah, they, I think before they get back to their ship, I think they get it on the radio or something. And they, they sort of they sort of race straight to the planet. Um, and, and Horus is like out cold, I think, by this point. They're sort of carrying, carrying him on. <coughs> yeah, and they, they have to put him in a stasis field in order to keep him alive. So they don't like the sound of uh, Horus being taken to this temple or whatever it is on or the lodge sorry or the serpent lodge on the the planet so um they kind of race there to try and stop something dodgy from happening basically they don't know exactly what the, the yeah so they they go down they get into this serpent lodge they find uh the rest of the mornival and a few other of the 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 lodge members and they're standing in front of this door and Logan's just like yo y'all get the fuck out I'm, I'm getting in there I'm gonna y- you can't you can't do this and they're all like no it's done man they're you know what else can we do he was gonna die uh, which is a point I guess but um, Logan is all like what is this and why is Erebus why did Erebus suggest this uh, how is he a lodge member? Like, how did you take him into the lodge? And uh, Abaddon was Abaddon said, "No, you've got it wrong. Um, he brought us into the lodge. He's the origin of the lodge in <coughs> in the Legion." Yeah. This at this point, I think anybody in Loken's situation would be like, "Yo, we've just come from the planet. We found this." Anathem weapon. It came from the Kinnebrack. Just lay it all out and say, You've been taken for a ride. This is proof enough. Like it's that's all the proof anybody needs. But Lucan was just like get out of my way. No, we're not gonna get out of your way. And he's like, Oh, I'll have to find something else to do. And and that's it. But that's the breaking of the Mournival. Like Abaddon and Aximand are like you walking away from us. You walking away from your oaths. Are you oath breakers? And I think Loken gets well pissed. But Turgadon's on his side, so that'll be useful. <laughs> Turgadon, Turgadon still manages the joke in the situation. I should point out. But um, what yeah. does he say? Well, so that, well, anyway, just before I get onto that, wait, Horus at this point they've like put him inside. A, what is it? A room like a in behind some uh, gate that apparently won't open. Can't be opened except from inside. So. A person who needs healed is basically carried inside, and they're left to what the spirits decide to do to them. So either, um, if they come, you know, if they're allowed to live, they open the gate themselves. If not, it opens in nine days, and their remains are burned. So they've just kind of stuck him in there and hope that he'll get better. But anyway, Abaddon's sorry, Loken's like, you know, like you said, he's he's upset about all this and he's having a go at them, and then. Abaddon says, what of you, Tarek? Will you turn from your mournable brothers as Garviel does? Stand with us. And uh, Turgadon says, Garvey may be a star chart, says Zico, but he's right, and I can't stand with you in this one. I'm sorry. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think I counted three uses of the term star chart <laughs> in the first two 
sections of the book. Yeah. That's too many. One's too many. But three three is a lot. It's like it's like he was looking at um the you know, thinking, right, I've got to write book number two. I better, you know, I'll read book number one and see what I should pick up from that book. <laughs> it's like I really like the star charts and I really like the picture of a stiff arse. <laughs> um <laughs> And I like those training scenes. Anyway, that's basically the end of part two. And that is the end of this episode. Yeah. Cool. Well, what did you think so far? We're halfway into the book. What do you think? What did I think? Um, It's actually like, I've got to say, my reaction after this discussion is really different than it was when I first read the book. Um, Because, like, I think when when I, like, started reading it, I was kind of like, yes, stuff's happening now, you know, like, because um, really the first book had some, had some really good bits in it, but it was like a lot of scene setting, really, you know, it's like they're off in this great crusade, um, you know, here's the characters, uh, and um, it sort of begins this chaos plot and all that happening, but um didn't really move that far along the story, uh, whereas this, like, they kind of get straight into it and like you say, suddenly it's like characters are kind of changed now. Um, there's, well, they pretty quickly get into a fight with these, all these undead beasts and it's starting to feel like you're getting into some proper chaos here. Um, but you're, I think you were totally right. Like Those first uh, scenes, looking back at them, were like really confusing. Um, but it does, I do think it it, like the, the scene on the planet is is up there with some of the best stuff we've had so far, and like oh, totally yeah, um, I did I did quite enjoy reading it. It zipped along, and I've started reading the second half, and I'm enjoying that probably even more because there's just some cool like oh, the second halves are always loaded with with uh, the good stuff. Okay, you got anything you want to add? Or? Uh, yeah. Well, um, we're now available on all normal podcast platforms you can get us on itunes soundcloud pocket casts stitcher there's others aren't there those are all the ones i can think of but um yeah if you like if you like it if you like this podcast leave a review or tell somebody or uh, you know spread the word because uh it's good fun to do and it would be uh, great to sort of build a, a listenership and obviously everyone get in touch at uh horseheretics at gmail.com 